Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Hi, everybody. Is this, is this too loud? Are you sure? I can start screaming. No, I won't. <clears throat> Hi there. Hello. Uh, welcome to... This feels weird. It's not up to... I don't care. They need to read from it. It doesn't matter. I mean, if I... <clears throat> anyway, welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. All right. Oh, God. At least take it from the top so I don't get the chill. You know, but I can delete. But I can delete them because I own the camera. All right. Anyway, sorry. It's a monthly reading series of science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and it's always the third Wednesday of the month. Come rain or come shine, all year round. And we, thank you. We try to. What we try to do is. What we try. What we try to do is. Is this going to go on the podcast? Or we could cut, do we cut that out? I don't even know. Um, oh, that's okay. Um, what we try to do is pair a not as well-known writer with a well-known writer. But in this case, we have two well-known writers, so you're in luck. <clears throat> anyway, I'm Ellen Datlow. That's Matthew Kressel. We run this series. We curate it. And um, we do not pay to, st- to do anything here. The only thing the bar asks is that you buy drinks. You can buy a soft drink, hard drinks, whatever you like and enjoy yourself here. Um, we do have, uh, we just started, we finally, after how many years, 10 years, we actually now have a podcast of um, each reading that's up on the KGB, at Fant- Fantastic Fishing KGB website that Matt has created. Um, we've only started doing it about three months, four months ago, so it started with the Laird Barron and Paul Trembley readings, but if you want to catch up on the readings, you can listen to them there. And um, if you want to hear them again after you hear them tonight, you can go back and tell your friends or whatever you like. <clears throat> if you want to be on our mailing list, um, we do have a mailing list. It's on Yahoo Groups, I think. Yahoo. And you go again. Go again. Go to the. It's not the KGB bar site. It's the Fantastic Fiction at KGB site. So you should be able to sign up for the reading. And the only thing we send you are notices of these readings. Nothing else. Um, did I forget anything? Oh, we have Word, Word Bookstore is Selling Books by Mary and, um, and Leanna. <laughs> and our first reader tonight is Mary Robinette Cole. <clears throat> Reb- Mary Robinette Cole won the Campbell Award for Best New Writer in 2003 and is the author... What? Eight. How did I get... I believe you. I'm just saying, I'm, I believe her. It's just we sent it out all over the place. It's three. I'm sorry. Okay, <clears throat> 2008. 
and is the author of Shades of Milk and Honey and Glamour and Glass. Her short fiction, for which she has won two Hugo Awards, has been published in Clark's World, Cosmos, Asmos Science Fiction, Oh God! Several ears bust. Ears. I don't. I have ears best, but anyway. and and several years best anthologies, as well in, as in her collection, scenting the dark and other stories. Mary is also a professional puppeteer and voice actor. Please welcome Mary Robinette. This evening, I would actually attempt to sneak in two excerpts from two different novels because why not? Um, so this is, I'm going to start with an excerpt from Of Noble Family, which is the fifth and final book in the Glamorous Histories. I have carefully edited the first chapter for this reading to cut all spoilers except for two. <laughs> Those two spoilers are you will know exactly who marries whom at the end of the first book and they are not yet dead. <laughs> yet. <laughs> this is the last book, so no promises. Other than that, the only thing that you probably need to know is that this book is set in 1818, um, and I think all of the details of the magic system and all of that will become clear as I read. Uh, hello? <laughs> I'll wait. <laughs> It's a business. They, they, they should totally be allowed to. Okay. So, Of Noble Family, Chapter 1. The presence of an infant in any gathering offers all the substance for conversation one might require. In some instances, this might result in a desire to be away. But still, one has something to discuss, even if it is only the volume of squalling. In the case of Jane and Vincent's current visitor, Herr Scholes appeared content to make faces at the infant upon his knee. The celebrated glamorist widened his eyes, rounded his mouth into a circle, and made the most ridiculous noise. The whole of his expression was at odds with his reputation as one of the great glamorists of the ages. Young Tom giggled in response and waved his plump fists. Oh, like one of Rubens' cherubinum you are, eh? <laughs> At the conversation, Tom's gaze drifted from the elderly glamorist's face as if watching something that attracted him. Every infant Jane had known stared as Tom did, seeming to fix upon random patterns in the air. Yet, if one were to switch one's vision to the ether, the object of the infant's fascination was clear. Loose strands of natural glamour floated in front of him. Jane glanced across the room to where her husband, Sir David Vincent, sat by the window, with a faint smile warming his features as he watched Herr Scholes play with Tom. During the four months they had been in residence in Vienna, Vincent had taken the opportunity to refresh his acquaintance with his old mentor, Herr Scholes. Their time in the city had seen a softening in Vincent as he seemed to shed layers of disquiet. His blue coat of superfine hung to advantage on his broad shoulders, once, the strong line of Vincent's jaw had seemed incapable of anything more than disdain. Now, he was captivated with Tom to the point of offering to watch the boy while his nanny was taken with an ague. There. Vincent sat forward as Tom snatched to the empty air in front of Herr Scholes. He is reaching for the glamour. Love, he simply has not yet learned to distinguish between the corporeal world and the ether. But he is forward for his age, is he not? 
to reach at only two months. Then he starts folding glamour, then we may call him exceptional. Until then, he is merely interested. <laughs> Herr Skulls crossed his eyes for the boy. And adorable. <laughs> to give you a better understanding, my daughter's second child was working glamour before he was delivered. Surely not. That cannot have been safe for the mother or the child. And how do you tell a baby to stop working glamour, eh? It never lasted long enough to be a concern, but was quite astonishing. Are you certain it was not a prank? Oh no, this is a genuine, though rare event. Your pranks, on the other hand, were far from rare. Did you say pranks? You must imagine my curiosity at my husband's exploits. Pray do not keep me in suspense. Herr Scholes gave a little chuckle. Oh, well, you should pray. Your husband was one of the most devilish. Vincent cleared his throat. I suspect I shall regret this topic of conversation. I was only going to tell Lady Vincent about the fish pond. Ah. Um. Vincent's blush was most becoming. Jane asked all innocence, fish pond? Her husband shifted in his seat and rubbed his brown curls in, into an even more riotous mess. I may have been caught while attempting a bit of subterfuge. Three times! <laughs> I thought he would never learn. I had only three rules, and one of them was that my pupils must be in the house by midnight. You said that it was so that your housekeeper did not need to wait up to let us in. I did not make her wait, did I? Only because you were opening a window and stealing out of it. He left a ladder by the window, Lady Vincent, masked by a glamoural, so he could come and go at his leisure. And I do need to give him credit that it was a very pretty illusion. <laughs> this was before he had developed the sphere obscurity, so he had needed to weave a glamoural with all the details of the view that would have been visible if the ladder had not been present. It was not terribly complicated being against a stucco wall. If it had not been so nicely done, I would have noticed it sooner. Now, the window was not so high, but there was a small ornamental fish pond next to the house, and he used the ladder to span it. The first time, I simply removed the ladder. I was practiced at slipping out, so I slid my legs out the window, trusting the ladder was there, lost my balance, and landed in the pond. <laughs> Woke the house with his swearing! It was cold. <laughs> you were embarrassed, and the anger came from that. Vincent rubbed the back of his neck and gave a dry grimace. Shall I hold Tom for you? Perhaps he needs changing. I could take him out? <laughs> Her usually gruff husband appeared to be an embarrassed schoolboy. Given his height and the breadth of his shoulders, it was an incongruous expression, rather like seeing a chagrined bear. <laughs> He adjusted the cuffs of his coat, with the blush still high on his cheeks. Tom is perfectly content where he is. The glamorous tapped the infant's nose with his forefinger. Are you not, my boy? Tom gurgled with delight, offering no escape for Vincent. The second time, he slipped free part of the glamour that was masking the ladder and looked before stepping out, but... With a pained chuckle, Vincent took up the next section. But he had placed a second glamoural beneath the first to show a ladder there. <laughs> it was not. Mind you, the illusion was brilliant and had the support structure woven so that it looked like drifting bits of natural glamour. 
We had not yet begun to study Volrag's treatise on optics and the possible uses of oxidizing threads as anchor points in glamurals. I do not know if Volrag's work was even published in English. Have you had the occasion to read it, Jane? I have heard of it, but my German is not so good as to allow me to read it. Also, my dear, I believe you are using a discussion of craft to change the subject. <laughs> and you will not let me. <laughs> did you land in the fish pond again? <laughs> I did. <laughs> With as much swearing as before! <laughs> Although not for the same reasons this time. Cold and wet, yes, but I was more angry that I'd been tricked by glamour. It was an affront that my dignity disliked more than the dousing. And yet that did not stop you from attempting to slip out. Herr Scholes lifted a finger in the air. The third time, he had hidden the ladder in his room so as not to chance its removal. So I made it out the window and across the pond, thinking myself in the clear, until my teacher threw a basin of water upon me. Vincent shook his head, laughing now at the memory. How did you know that I would be stepping out that particular night? I have never been able to satisfy myself as to that. It was weeks after the other attempts. Herr Scholes winked. I did not know. I was not there, in fact. Hmm. But, but I saw you. And let us not forget the basin of water. Vincent tilted his head, staring at the older man in disbelief. Glamour. No, no, I was unequivocally wet because I remember dripping on the floor and hanging my clothes to dry after. A string stretched across the path, emptied the basin. I heard the swearing, again, and was able to spin up an inverted crookshanks weave that I had prepared earlier. Then it was simply a matter of stepping into the open end upon my balcony. It gave me a clear line of sight to your path. Had you crept out during the day, I would never have been able to get away with it, because the image does not carry enough detail to be plausible in daylight. But in the dark... To an angry young man, it no doubt looked very much like I was standing on the path. Vincent's gaze went a little distant, as though looking into the ether or into memory. Oh, oh, that was beautifully done. <laughs> and you did not speak then, simply pointed back to the house. When I changed out of my wet things and you were waiting at my door, I thought you had followed me. Oh, artfully done. I am embarrassed to know that I did not sort that out. <laughs> I am pleased to see that being embarrassed no longer makes you angry. <laughs> Not usually. Jane asked, but why were you stealing out? Vincent's smile slipped a fraction. In the hesitation, she saw him consider avoiding the question. Then he gave a little shrug. This was not long after I had arrived. I had been free of my father's influence for just over a year and had trouble sleeping. For a moment, the memory of his father's abuse haunted his face. Then habit smoothed his expression. Walks helped clear my head. That night, her schools advised me to use glamour as a release, and it has proved to be more efficacious. I will tell you now that my intention that night had been to expel you. I thought you were off visiting a maid, and if you had dissembled in the slightest, I would have carried through with that intention, though it would have broken my heart. He shifted Tom to his other arm. I had only given you three chances because I was not prepared to let go of my net, my best pupil. You had better pupils. I was merely Mr. Vincent! Herr Scholes glared at Jane's husband. She shrank back in her chair herself, even though that look was not turned upon herself. What have I told you repeatedly about undervaluing your work? 
the abashed look returned, and Jane could imagine her husband as a pupil of one and twenty. He knit his hands together, ducking his head. I must not undervalue my work because I enjoy it. A working artist understands his worth and lives by it. Good! Though I should apologize to speaking to you as a pupil. I am still unused to calling you Sir David. To be honest, I would prefer to be Mr. Vincent still, but one does not say no when the Prince Regent wishes to confer a knighthood. <laughs> the door opened and the butler entered with the morning mail. Vincent stood with relief and took the small packet, clearly grateful for an excuse to avoid the conversation. Herr Scholes smacked his forehead with the flat of his palm. Letters! I was so taken with young Tom that I forgot I had a reason for calling. Have you given thought to what you will do when you return to England? Jane shook her head. I'm afraid not. There! I had a letter from one of my pupils who is starting a school for girls in London and has asked me to help her find glamorous teachers. She is one of Sir David's former pupils, so I naturally thought to ask if you and he might be interested. Well, possibly. It would be very agreeable to remain in a pl one place for a while. Their tour of the continent had been extended rather longer than they had originally planned. Jane turned to get Vincent's opinion, more than a little surprised that he had not expressed some curiosity about the project. He stood by the window in a state of shock, though not at Harris Cole's news. To another, he might appear merely distant or unconcerned. His agitation was marked by a layer of excessive calm, spoiled only by a faint tremor in his hand as he stared at one of the letters that the butler had brought in. From Jane's seat, she could make out the black border at the edge of the paper. That, with his rigid expression, could only mean that he had received word of a death. Vincent? He shook himself and looked up. Forgive me, I... My father is dead. dead yet. <laughs> Except dad. But that's the end of chapter one. Yeah, so that doesn't count as a spoiler because it's the end of chapter one. Um, I think I have time to read a very short, like five or ten minutes second. Okay. So, so one of the questions people keep asking me is, well, what are you going to do now that you've finished the Glamorous Histories? I'm going to do this. Um, this is called Ghost Talkers. It is coming out from Tor in 2016. And I'm going to read you a section of chapter one. And since it's chapter one, I'm going to read it to you without telling you anything. I'm just going to dive in. <laughs> Ghost Talkers, chapter one. July 16th, 1916. The Germans were flanking us at Deville Wood when I died. Ginger Stuyvesant had a dim awareness of her body repeating the soldier's words to the team's stenographer. She had tried to hold, she tried to hold that awareness at bay along with the rest of the warehouse. She ached with fatigue, even with a full circle supporting her, and the exhaustion would pull her back into her body before her shift was finished. It wouldn't be fair to force Helen to assume control of the circle early. The other medium was just as tired. Around her, the currents of the spirit world swirled in slow spirals. Past events brushed her in eddies of remembrance. Caught in those memories, scent and color floated with thick emotion. The Battle of the Somme had kept the entire spirit corps working extra shifts, trying to take reports from the dead, and the air was frigid with souls. 
The young soldier in front of her had been with the 9th Scottish Division, 26th Brigade, the Black Watch. Private Graham Quigley still was, technically, until his unfinished business was completed and he could cross beyond the veil. Belatedly, Ginger realized what he'd said. So you could see the Germans? You know their positions? His aura rippled black with remembered pain, but a flash of amber satisfaction shot through it. Oh, ma'am, don't adjust. The shell that got me made it clear as all that I'd not lived through the day, so I had the boys prop me up. Quigley grinned. I saw the Huns set the guns up, not fifteen feet from where I laid bleeding. When did you die? The time. Did you see the time? Eleven forty-seven. His spirit winked at her. I had one of the blokes hold up a watch so I could see the time. Remembered my training, I did. Most soldiers came in within a few minutes of their death, but sometimes their confusion or the sheer number of them meant that their report didn't come until hours later. Knowing when they died was vital. The town of La Havre was in the same time zone as the Somme, which made the math easier when someone farther than, than when someone farther east reported in. Her shift ended at noon, so Quigley had only been dead for a few minutes. Can you show me their positions? Aye, that I can. The amber of his pleasure suffused and buried the dark pain of death. If the spirit core did nothing else, it gave these young men some meaning for their death. Give me a moment. Her circle, well-trained as they were, made the necessary changes to their configuration. Taking care not to break contact with her, Mrs. Richardson, on her right, slid her hand up Ginger's arm so that her hand was free. An aide, seated in the center, center of the circle, positioned the drawing board in front of her. Edna had already clipped a map of the village of Longueville and Deville Wood to the, to the board. Neither woman had the sight, so to them, the soldier was only a dim shadow and only when they were in full contact with the soldier. Without it, they'd feel nothing more than a spot of uncanny cold where he stood. But while the circle was in effect, with a medium to lead, all eight of the sitters could hear him, and the countless drills they had done stood them in good stead. If Quigley had seen where the Germans were, the command center could hopefully find a way to stop those guns. A cluster of other ghosts waited, crowding the war room until another circle was free to take the report. Dimmer flashes of living people walked through the room, carrying stenographers' reports or updated orders as the casualties poured in. Ginger reminded her body to take a breath before she turned her attention back to the soldier. She pushed her soul farther out of her body. The relief sighed through Ginger as her mortal weight lessened. Her soul blended with the radiance around her. This was not the time to permit herself to drift in the spirit plane and delight in the tangible flow of souls. Show me, please. She reached for Quigley and let his soul wrap around hers, dropping into his memories. He is leaning against a wall, trying not to look at where his legs used to be. The pain is not as bad as he thought it would be, but he'd give anything for a drink. He is so thirsty. The blasted Huns have overrun their positions and are setting up their guns behind the wall of what used to be a church. No proper respect, shelling a church like that. He blinks, trying to focus, but the world is starting to go gray around the edges. The Lance Corporal had told them how important it was to the war effort to remember after death. There were five of them. Three to handle the gun, plus another two to manage the horses that pulled it into place. 
The sound of the gun going off is deafening, but he's too tired to flinch. It's cold. It's a relief after the oppressive July heat, but why is it cold? The gun fires again, and he stares at it, willing himself to remember. It's a heavy field howitzer, a 5-9, and they look to be settling in to stay. Ginger pulled herself back, sinking back towards her body. It had gotten even colder in the vast warehouse. No, no, that was just a residual from Quigley's memory. Her body shuddered with it anyway, and she wanted to push back away from the heavy mortal flesh. The circle pulled her down, anchoring her. Ginger checked to make sure she was still breathing and nodded to the soldier. Thank you. That is very good information. I will make a commendation to your superior officer. Back in the mortal sphere, Edna was slipping the map from the board. Upon it, Quigley had drawn the location of the gun and the Germans at the time of his death. A runner would take that to the intelligence officer, and they would relay the information back to the front line. Ginger sent up a prayer that they could stop the gun, even while knowing that there would be more. There were always more deaths facing her. At the edge of her awareness, a familiar spark entered the room among the living. Captain Benjamin Hartshorn. Even from here, his aura crackled with anger and worry. The worry wasn't unusual. It seemed that Ben was always worried these days about something. The anger, though, and the way it twined into the heavy gray worry like a scarlet serpent. That was not like her fiancé. Am I finished, ma'am? Quigley's presence pulled her attention back to where it belonged. The said in training that we could send a message back after we reported in. Yes, of course. Ben and his worry would have to wait until his shift, her shift ended. What message would you like to pass on? She would just repeat his words and let the stenographer take note instead of spirit writing. It seemed unjust to complain of being tired when speaking to the dead, but her entire body ached with other people's memories. Tell Alistair Owen that he owes me five bob. He'd bet that I was too daft to remember to report in, and I guess he was wrong. <laughs> the soldier twisted the memory of his cap in his hands. The amber faded, and for a moment his aura went deep purple with grief. And tell my mum that I love her, and that I'm sorry about the table leg. I meant to fix it before I went to war. Tell her I'm sorry I didn't. Hell, tell Alistair Owen to give the five bob to mum, and she can use that to get the leg fixed. Only don't say I said hell. He looked behind him, and the edges of his spirit blurred. Oh, that's the light the lance corporal was talking about, I guess. Huh, it's yellow. With a sigh, Quigley let go and diffused away from them. The eddies of his passing tugged on Ginger's soul, nudging her to go along with him on his journey. Her circle held fast, holding her to this mortal coil. With her spirit... She held a salute as Private Quigley's soul passed fully through the veil to the next plane of existence. And then another soldier took his place. There are books back there by Mary and by Leanna that you can buy from Word and have them sign. And uh, we're going to take a 10-minute break, and I'll see you in a little while. Welcome back. Welcome back. We're, uh, we're going to get started. Guys, we're going to get started with our next reader, people in the back. 
I'm, I'm looking at you right there. All right, thank you. Um, so, uh, as Ellen said before, welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. It's a reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month here at the KGB bar. All we ask is that you buy a drink. There's no cover charge ever, soft or hard drinks. Um, I'm Matthew Kressel, co-host with Ellen Datlow. Been doing this for about, uh, well, I've been doing it for about five or six years, and the series itself has been going on for over a decade. And uh, as Ellen said, we have some podcasts online. It's kgbfantasticfiction.org. You can listen to the last four months of the readings uh, if you miss them. Um, also, remember, buy books, get them signed. They have uh, both Mary and Leanna's books in the back. Uh, Molly from Word Bookstore. Wave! Yay! Awesome, awesome indie bookstore. Check it out. They're in uh, Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and uh, Jersey City. So uh, check them out if you can. They also have a great reading series as well. Um, before we start, just a brief announcement of the upcoming readers. Next month, October 15th, Genevieve Valentine and E. Lily Yu. November 19th, Nancy Cress and Jack Skillingstead. December 17th, Rajan Khanna and SIFWA President Stephen Gould. Uh, January 21st, Andy Duncan and Gregory Frost. February 18th, Mike Allen and Ben Lurie. March 18th, Lisa Minetti and Caitlin Kiernan. April 15th, Ken Liu and Isabeau Wills. And a lot of, uh, well, it's a, we'll just say she's coming for now. Don't tell, don't tell Isabeau, you know? Um, so yeah, so that's like an awesome lineup for uh, the next couple months of, of this year and next. So hope you can join us for that. Um, I'm really excited to introduce our next reader. Uh, she's read here um, several times and, and every time I'm blown away uh, by the stories and her presentation of. Uh, Leanna Renee Heber is a professional stage and screen actress as well as the author of multiple gas lamp fantasy sagas including the Strangely Beautiful Saga, The Magic Most Foul Saga, and her upcoming Eternophile Saga with Tor books. Her Strangely Beautiful Saga will be reissued by Tor next year. Yay! Her short fiction has appeared in numerous anthologies such as Queen Victoria's Book of Spells, Willful Impropriety, and The Mammoth Book of Gas Lamp Romance. A proud SAG-AFTRA member, she works in film and television on shows like Boardwalk Empire and the web series Sky of the Damned. Here's Leanna. Oh, wait. I'll go ahead. I, I had one brief announcement. I apologize. I was asked to just briefly announce that um, Gordon Linsner gives uh, ghost tours, an Eldritch pub crawl. Visit some of the most ghostly sites in Manhattan's East Village, including stops at three haunted bars. Check it out, Gordon Lindsner. He's got flyers come up. Sorry, Leanna. Thank you. If I were to get in the way of a ghost tour, I'd be limiting my own branding. So <laughs> I love me some ghosts. I just, I, I really can't quit ghosts. You know why? Because when you write yourself into a wall, the ghost just goes through it. 
and it's just, they're the most brilliant plot devices ever. Oh, oh, you can boo me, but then try it when you write yourself in It's amazing. Once you go ghost, you'll never go back. So, seriously. All right, darlings. So, um, so yes, I write gothic Victorian fiction, and I'm so excited to be here. I love this place. I love this crowd. I love these people. I love Mary. I love what she writes. I'm so excited that I'm reading with Mary, one of my favorite authors and people in this room full of amazing people. So it's um, you're you're getting a, a double dose of historical fantasy here today, which is which is pretty great. Um, I'm very also blessed to be with Tor because Tor kind of um, saved my 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 entire career by lifting me off of the uh, flame-ridden wilds that was Dorchester Publishing um, with my first, yeah, guys, yeah. So my first books were with Dorchester, so bless, bless Tor for, for, for saving, saving my entire career and uh, reissuing the entire uh, Strange and Beautiful um, saga. So a lot of, to all the Tor people here, bless you. Um, and and, and we, Mary and I love you. And uh, so... So not only does Tor have my front list, but Tor has my back list, and all of my series have crossover characters, so it's one big old party in the 1880s <laughs> in London and New York. So The Eterna Files is uh, kind of a Fermia coming home. I am finally published just in straight-up adult fantasy, like I've always wanted to be this whole time. Um, my series have been on many different shelves, and I'm finally coming home to adult fantasy, and I'm finally coming home to a little bit of a darker strain. Um, I, I'm, I'm excited to have uh, finally have a chance to infuse a little bit more horror into what I'm doing, so, uh, so look out. And uh, this is, so, so The Eterna Files is now available for pre-order. Um, ha -ha. So it's coming out February 3rd. 2015, and, um, and so I'm very, very excited about that, um, and, and you can check it out now. We will have a teaser novella coming out later on this year. I'm reading chapter one of The Eterna Files, and all you need to know is that it's London, it's 1882, the story is a parallel narrative between London and New York, and I'm hoping that most of this is self-explanatory in chapter one, let's hope. <laughs> Harold Spire had been pacing until first light, crawling out of his skin to close his godforsaken case. The moment the tentative sun poked over the chimney tops of Lambeth, though it did not successfully permeate London's sooty haze, he raced out the door to meet his appointed contact. Conveniently, there was a fine black hansom just outside his door. Spire shouted his destination at the driver as he threw open the door and launched himself into the carriage. He was startled to find that the cab already had an occupant, a short, balding man, immaculately but distinctly dressed as one might expect of a royal footman. Hello, Mr. Spire. Spire's stomach dropped. His right hand hovered over his left wrist, where he kept a small, sharp knife in a simple cuff. Surely this was one of Turney's henchmen. The villain was well-connected and would do anything to save his despicable hide. Do not be alarmed, sir. We are en route to Buckingham Palace on orders of Her Majesty, Queen Victoria. Is there a problem? Spire asked, maintaining a calm tone, relaxing his hand, but offering up a silent prayer to whatever God was decent and good that the Queen would not have interceded on the wretch's behalf. No, sir, you are be being considered for an appointment. I can say nothing more. I am afraid I cannot attend to this great honor at present, sir. The man arched a preened brow. Beg your pardon? With all due respect, 
Spire continued, not bothering to hide the earnest desperation he felt. I am a policeman at a critical juncture, awaiting receipt of vital material, without which a vicious criminal might walk free. And what shall I tell Her Majesty? That you're too busy for her? Spire set his jaw, looking anxiously out the window, seeing that they were heading in the opposite direction from where he needed to be at precisely seven. Please tell Her Majesty that I'm about to stop a ring of child murderers and resurrectionists, burks and hares, body snatchers. That will have to wait. Mere police work does not come before Her Majesty. I think highly enough of Her Majesty to think she deemed this important. I am under orders to take you to the palace, regardless of prevarication. I wouldn't dare lie about a thing like this. Once Her Majesty has determined your suitability, you'll be returned to your duties. You'll have to give the Empress my sincere regrets. She may be able to live with one more child, dead in her realm, but I, sir, cannot. With that... Spire opened the door of the moving carriage and cast himself onto flagstones, slick with a foul mixture of the London streets. His heel turned slightly under him, and he came down painfully. His elbow jarred against stone, and his forearm cut against the brace that held his knife sheath. He jumped to his feet and ran with a slight limp, veering onto a bridge across the busy, teeming brown Thames and onward to a life-or-death rendezvous. He'd likely be arrested for his evasion, but his conscience was utterly clear. Spire's right hand hovered over his left forearm as he entered the damp brick alley, which was lit sporadically by gas jets whose light was dim behind blackened lantern glass. Even though the world was brightening with the gray of morning, sunlight did not penetrate into these drear winding halls of sooty brick, London having its labyrinthine qualities. He made his tread soundless on the cobblestones, his eyes aware of every shadow and shape, his ears alert, his nostrils flared. While he doubted his informant was dangerous, it was all bookkeeping, really. He imagined the source was a, was a bank clerk or the like. What the ledgers revealed was something else entirely. The proof itself was dangerous, and many men would kill with far less provocation. If Gazelle proved trustworthy, Spire re would recruit the man for his department. He palmed the key Gazelle had left in the drop location at Cleopatra's Needle. If all had gone according to plan, Gazelle would have left enough evidence at this bookstore to prove without a shadow of a doubt that Francis Turney was bankrupting charitable, si charitable societies in a speculation racket that was would make any betting man blush. That he was also involved in a child trafficking ring of both living and dead young bodies was harder to prove, but far more damning. The key opened the rear alley door of the bookshop. A small lantern was lit somewhere within, casting wan yellow light over stacks of spines. Spire knocked on the wooden door frame, three taps, a pause, and two more. A quiet rap in response, confirmed that his informant was waiting. Spire edged his way through boxes and stacks towards the source of the light. He turned a corner of books and stopped dead. There sat a woman who had gotten him into good bit of trouble. The prime minister's best kept secret, his bookkeeper, one Miss Rose Everhart. Poised as ever, seated at a long wooden table, the lit lantern cast her scowl of concentration into sharp relief as bell sleeves spilled over a stack of thin spines. One ledger lay open under her hand. She ran gloved fingertips over the pages. She wasn't stunning, but unique. A full mouth was set in a frown, gave her a gravitas offset by the few loose browns curl, brown curls around her cheeks, an almost whimsical contrast to her fastidious expression. When she looked up at Spire, her large blue eyes made her intriguing, magnetic. You're surprised to see a woman? Yes, especially one I recognize. At this, the woman smiled. 
You made quite an impression, Miss Everhart. A cloaked female figure glimpsed wandering the halls of Parliament, only to disappear into a wall. I didn't buy the story that you were a spectre. The two curious Westminster policemen, so we meet again. The eager dog sniffing out a fox. My employers, who were granting me the easiest access to my job, while hoping to avoid any national outcry, were not fond of you. And I confess, nor was I. It was bad enough to have sneak about than to be thought suspect for it when I am a patriot horrible. Yes, I was quite chastised about that by your superior Lord Black, so you needn't pile on. He wondered with a sudden fear if that's why the Queen wished to see him, more scolding. Spire's purview was Westminster and its immediate environs. When he'd stumbled upon Miss Everhart, he'd merely been doing his job. Turney's speculation ring involved members of both the House of Commons and the House of Lords, so it was perhaps not surprising that Spire had thought the Prime Minister's bookkeeper had access others did not. At the mention of Lord Black, Miss Everhart smiled and she warmed. She stood suddenly as if on ceremony, gesturing for Spire to sit opposite. We have enough on the compelling case she said, handing ledgers across the table. Good. But it's this that will decipher the decisive blow. The cover of the, the ledger said registry. What's this? Did you collect this from the banks? No, from Turney's study. At Spire's raised eyebrow, Miss Everhart clarified, after I showed him the numbers, Lord Black arranged for Sir Turney to attend some sort of speculator's gala. Black stamped a warrant and found this. Shocked by a lord's unorthodox method, but impressed by the man's initiative, Spire opened the book. Small, dark marks, round smudges, marched down the pages and boxes made up of thin graphite lines. A few letters, initials, Spire guessed, were penciled above each dot. On one side of the page, the dots were dark red. On the other side, the small marks were black. The top of each page was a single letter, L above the red marks and D above the black. Horror dawned, slow and sick, as Spire stared at the lines of dots and initials, dots the size of a child's fingertip. Living, Spire's finger hovered over the L, then he moved to the D. Deceased, God, they were children's fingerprints, swabbed in their blood, or if their bodies had been stolen when dead, their fingers dipped in ink and pressed to the page, a registry of stolen children, used for God knows what. I, Spire stared at Miss Everhart. I'm sorry you had to see this. I am 30, Mr. Spire, and unmarried. I doubt I'll ever have children, so I'll do whatever I can. I owe it to these poor children not to flinch. Spire nodded. He hadn't thought to place any women assets in his police force, but women could keep secrets, tell lies, deceive, and connive with an aptitude that frightened him. <laughs> women made bloody good spies. He knew that well enough. Spire rose, sliding the ledger, breakdown, and registry into his briefcase. Thank you, Miss Everhart. Please give Lord Black my regards. I was unaware he was involved. I'm not wasting any time on the arrest. I didn't imagine you would. She wove. She, she rose and wove expertly through the labyrinth of books. As she disappeared, she called back to him. Go on, I'll alert your squadron. I doubt you should go there alone. He stared after her a moment, resentful of initiative taken without his orders, but it would save him valuable time. Spire and his squad descended upon the decadent attorney estate, a hideous, sprawling mansion faced in ostentatious pink marble, hoarding a generous swath of land in North London. 
His best men at his side, Stuart Grange and Gregory Fife, Spire stormed Turney's front door, blowing past a startled footman. The despicable creature was having breakfast in a fine parlor. The son of a marquis, descended of a withering line, seemed quite shocked to see the police. His, ex his surprised expression validated Spire's entire existence. Mm -hmm. Spire was tempted to strike the man across the jaw on principle, but became distracted by the thin maid in a tattered black dress and besmeared white linen apron who cowered in the corner of the parlor, entirely ignored by the rest of the force she was shaking, unable to look anyone in the eye. Her condition was a stark contrast to her fine surroundings, which valued possessions higher than humanity. Shaking his head, Spire instructed his colleagues to secure Turney in the wagon. I've all kinds of connections, the bloated, balding man cried as he was dragged away. Would you like me to list the names of the powerful who will help me? I think you're in too deep for anyone but the devil to come to your aid, Mr. Turney, Spire called as the door was shut between them. Silence fell, and he turned to the woman in the corner. At his approach, the gaunt, the gaunt frail maid began murmuring through cracked lips, Please, please, please. She lifted a bony arm, and the cuff of her uniform slid back, revealing a grisly series of scars on her arm, burns, signed of binding, signs of binding and torture. Please what, miss? secret door. Get them out. She pointed at the opposite wall. A chill went down Spire's spine. He studied the wall for a long time before noticing the line in the carved wooden paneling. Crossing the room, he ran his hand along the molding, pressing until something gave. The hidden door swung open, and a horrific stench met his nostrils. The maid loosed a wretched noise and sunk to her knees, rocking back and forth. Spire raised his voice, calling to his partner and friend, a stalwart man who played all things carefully and whom Spire trusted implicitly. Grange, I think there might be a situation down here. Without waiting for a reply, Spire was through the door and descending a brick stairwell, fumbling in his pocket for a box of matches. A lantern hung at the base of the stair. He lit the wick, set it upon the crook. The flame, magnified by mirrors, cast a wan, line, wan light over the small, windowless brick room. It was everything Spire could do to keep from screaming in horror. Six small tables, three on each side of the room, each bore the body of a child clothed in a blood-stained tunic. Spire could not determine their genders due to their unkempt hair, pallor, and emaciated bodies. Strange wires seemed to be attached to the children. Nothing in his investigation, even that dread register had prepared him for this, these poor, innocent souls, helpless victims of a powerful man who was viciously mad. He raised his gaze from the children to an even greater horror, if a worse nightmare could be imagined. An auburn-haired woman in a thin chemise and petticoat was lashed to a cross-like apparatus, arms stretched out and sleeves torn away. Streams of dried blood from numerous puncture wounds stained her clothes, the cross, and the walls, and the floor. Below each of her lashed arms sat large bronze chalices. There was a basin at her feet. Spire knew in a glance that these were to collect the woman's blood. What horrific sacrifice was this? Spire turned his head to the side, and he retched. His mind scrambled to block out the image of who that woman reminded him of, the reason he'd become a police officer. The trauma of his childhood sprang back to haunt him at the sight of that ghastly vi visage in a blow to the mind, heart, and stomach. How could the world be endured if such a thing as this had come to pass? He'd asked the same question when the victim has been, had been his mother. Nothing answered him then or now but sorrow. I never believed much in the devil, came a soft, familiar voice near his ear. Or hell, but if I did, 
It would be this. Spire spun to see a cloaked figure at his side, the solitary lantern casting a shallow beam of light upon the face of Rose Everhart. Miss Everhart, you should not be here. I don't know how you got past my men. This is hardly the place for a lady. Even for the lady who handed you the critical evidence needed to arrest Turney, do I not wish to see him march to the gallows as much as you do? Don't I have the right to see my work completed? Don't try my patience with references to women's delicate sensibilities. I've seen more death and tragedy than I care to re relate to you. But admittedly, never like this. Never, never like this. Spire suddenly wondered whether she had heard or seen him wretch. It would be embarrassing if she had. <laughs> what are those wires? She asked. What are they for? Is this some sort of terrible experiment or workshop? Ritualistic, yes, but... Spire stepped forward, preparing, however reluctantly, to examine the bodies when something lurched out of the darkness behind him with a clatter of chains and an inhuman growl. It grabbed him around the neck, grunted as it tightened his grip, and dragged him backwards. Grange! Rose shouted as Spire gasped for air and struggled to reach his knife. If you're a victim, sir, we don't want to hurt you, she called in a softer tone, lifting her lantern and directing its light toward the scuffle. Let the officer go. He's with the police, here to help. Officer Grange tore down the stairs, arriving in the hellhole, just as Spire managed to grasp his weapon and cut at the arm holding him. There was a wretched sound of pain from his captor, and Spire felt a warm liquid trickle over his hand. Released, he staggered away and fell to his knees. Grange fired, the report of the gunshot exploding loudly in the low stone space. Spire's assailant recoiled with a shriek. Grange stood at the base of the stair with his gun raised. Rose stepped forward so the light from her lantern reached the back wall. Still gasping for air, Spire turned to view his attacker, a gaunt, muscular man with chunks of dark hair sprouting in uneven patches upon a scratched pate. The man's skin was carved with strange markings, his eyes black and oddly reflective. Blood pumped thick and dark from the bullet wound in his shoulder, looking old and half-congealed, though the injury was fresh. One arm was shackled to the wall. It was a guard then, but not one to be trusted freely. With a strange gurgling noise, a convulsion, and a wave of foul stench, the creature's mouth sagged open and the thing expired. It then seemed as though an obscuring shadow rose from the body, then spread across the room as if it were a dark, heavy storm cloud, precipitous with dread terror. Turning to look after the miasma as it passed, Grange, Spire, and Rose took in a startled breath at the same time. The mouths of the dead children, previously shut, were suddenly open, as if screaming. Silent, terrible moments passed before Spire, trying not to breathe the fetid air, stepping toward the tables, peering closer at the small, lifeless bodies. From what I know of the telegraph and those new electric wires, this seems similar, something to convey a transmission or a charge. But what do the... where? Where do the wires lead? Grange asked, looking at the ceiling where the wires formed a latticework grid on the low-timbered ceiling. Many hung loose in gossamer, metallic strands. It seems they don't continue on to the upper floors. Go and see. Grange nodded and trotted back up the stairs. Rose was writing upon a pad of paper, this common sense act, usually the first thing Spire himself did upon entering a crime scene, recalled him to himself. For an instant, he was flushed with shame that this unprecedented discovery had caused him to falter in his work. He forced himself back under control. He would not allow the dead woman across the room and what she represented to derail him. Though the room was cool, per perspiration coated Spire, and he could smell his own tension. He took out his notepad, replaced the lantern on the hook at the base of the stairs, and set to work. Each child's wrists had puncture marks. Each arm bore carvings. 
He'd have to get one of the department sketch artists to accurately reproduce the markings. He wished a daguerreotype was possible, not that he wanted to subject more people to these horrors, but only for the purpose of detail. They held the man responsible, but Spire knew Tierney was not operating alone. The sheer gruesome spectacle of this would be enough to indict any of the influential people that he worked with in his ghastly enterprise. He turned his attention towards the woman at the back. His head swam. He had to steady himself on one of the tables. A sloppily painted symbol on the woman's tunic appeared to be a crest, red and gold, with dragons. He couldn't look at her face. He was already haunted enough by the vision of a beautiful, auburn-haired woman being bled before his eyes. He could not. He felt more than saw the movement as Rose folded her cloak back over her head and she disappeared upstairs. Hearing voices calling his name, Spire returned upstairs. What's down there? A young patrolman asked. Hell. Don't anyone move a thing until all details have been recorded. I want more than my notes to refer to. Get Fife down there. I want records of everything, every single terrible detail. Spire sat in the fine chair that Turney had been using and continued making notes. The poor maid had been laid out on a nearby sofa. Is there any other staff? None that we've seen. He did not know how long he sat there recording his impressions of the horrors below before a voice startled him out of his morbid reverie. Herod Spire, come with me. He snapped his head up to behold the same well-heeled footman who had been at his doorstep this morning. Ah, oh, yes. The Queen's man. Are you here to arrest me? No, sir. While I had a mind to do so, Her Majesty is gracious and commends your commitment to English citizens. But you will come with me now. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, yes. Lead on, then, sir. During the ride, Spire could think of nothing but what he'd seen in that hidden cellar and what had reminded him of. He was not surprised to realize that his hands were shaking, his stomach cramped and growled, though the mere thought of food was enough to make him want to retch again. Buckingham Palace soon loomed ahead, gradually taking up the entire view out his carriage window. The hansom drew up to a rear door, and Harold Spire found himself led by the stern footman through a concealed entrance along a gilded hall into a tiny white room that contained only a single item, one fine chair. The space had no windows, only a door with a panel at eye level. The footman closed the door firmly, leaving Spire alone in the cupboard of a room. Would someone mind giving me even a partial clue as to what's going on? Spire called, glad he'd restrained from cursing when the answer came. The voice was a familiar one. Hello, Mr. Spire. That was Lord Black. Spire wanted to spill all the information about the case. Give me a moment, Mr. Spire, if you please. Spire heard two voices beyond the threshold talking about him. My th humble, humble thanks, my dear Lord Denbury. Lord Black said, bowing his blonde head to the handsome young man with eerie blue eyes seated next to him. The immaculately dressed gentleman each held a snifter of the finest brandy. Firstly, for the use of your Greenwich estate, Her Majesty is most grateful to have a place where her scientists and her doctors may be safe and undisturbed as they study the mysteries of life and death. Provided your aim is always the health of humankind rather than personal gain, you shall have my support, my lord, the young man said, bowing, bowing his black-haired head in return. That house has too many memories. I love my New York mansion far more. Ah, yes, Lord Black leaned forward. New York. My wife is a consummate New Yorker, born and raised, Denbury said with a smile. I see the city as I see her. Bold, opinionated, and beautiful. I love it. You should visit New York. 
I plan to, Lord Denbury. Secondly, I must thank you for coming here on vague bidding. I do hate secrets, the young man said, after all I've been through. Of course, Lord Black spoke with quiet gravity. So let me be direct with you now. I need a chief of security services for those scientists and doctors, and I'd like your expertise in determining character. I understand you see it like none other. Lord Denbury sighed wearily, but nodded. Both men rose. Lord Black opened the eye-level panel on the door and bade the other look through. His name is Harold Spire. What do you make of him? The man in question, seated on the velvet chair in the white room, wore a modest black suit. Scowling, he rested his hands on his lap. His green cravat gave the impression of having been hastily tied. It was rumpled, a bit askew. There were smudges upon his suit, as if he'd encountered dust or soot, and there was dark stain on his cuff. At a median British height, with light brown hair, Spire's average appearance might make a gamesome man, possibly even handsome, if the scowl didn't make him somewhat of a bulldog. What do you see? Black murmured. Well, Lord Denbury began matter-of-factly, he's had a terrible day. He bears a general white aura with hints of blue, with rep which represents that he means well and is at heart a good man, untroubled and unbiased by exterior forces. He will do the right and moral thing, provided that is what you want, Lord Black. You and she, he, should not be at any cross-purposes. Lord Black smiled. I assure you, my friend, what I want is moral, just, and fair. I see the same light about you, sir, but should those colors change, you'll no longer have my friendship. I'm sorry if that seems harsh, but the trials of the last two years have inured me to niceties. Is that all, my lord? I've left my dear wife anxiously awaiting a surprise trip to Paris. She's impossible when she's impatient, and she's never patient. <laughs> Black chuckled. Indeed, you are released, and I cannot thank you enough. Safe travels to you and yours. Lord Denbury bowed his head and strode away. Tell Her Majesty that Mr. Spire passed the test. Lord Black hadn't told Lord Denbury that the scientists and the doctors stationed at Rosecrest, the Denbury estate, had recently gone missing, along with the security chief assigned to them. If the cable he'd received from a contact in America was to be believed, the Americans weren't having a good time of this either. He had to wonder if the incidents were related somehow, impossible as that seemed. Ah, he turned as a rustle of skirts heralded the formidable presence coming his way. Your Majesty. Lord Black bowed low to the diminutive sovereign. Her stern face with its round cheeks was framed in white lace, while the rest of her was engulfed in black taffeta, dripping beads of Whitby jet. Mr. Spire has been cleared. Spire waited not entirely patiently for several minutes before Lord Black opened the door and gestured for him to leave the tiny plain room. Eager to bring the handsome, slender, fine-featured blonde up to date, Spire began, turning, Lord Black, it's done, but what I found. Black held up a hand. His tense smile flexed the scar that ran from above his right eyebrow down his cheek. Spire often wondered about the origin of that scar, but he'd never asked. Good work, Spire. The queen awaits you, but first... The sour-faced footman stepped up with a black suit coat in hand. You look as though you've traversed every layer of Dante's Inferno. Oh, just come right out with it and say I look like hell. <laughs> I saw hell. It's worse than anything you could have imagined. The footman grabbed his sooty coat and slid it off his arms, then muscled on the fresh jacket, though it in no way fit. Spire feared he'd split the seams with a least shift of his shoulders, which were far too broad for the fine fabric. The two short sleeves didn't entirely hide the patch of blood on his shirt cuff. Shuddering at the memory of where he'd acquired the stain, he tried to tuck it out of sight. Black nodded Spire towards the receiving room. He was shown in wordlessly. The door closed quietly. 
The surreality of Harold Spire's day was heightened by the lavish setting of Buckingham Palace, worlds away from his life and laughable when compared to the horror of his morning duties. He'd passed around the outside of the building during parades. He'd once visited the main foyer, but never before had he gained entrance to one of the receiving rooms. It was full of things, lacquered things, mirrored and crystalled things, tasseled and brocaded things, strains of music wafted into the tall, bright room, perhaps from a ballroom, a string quartet playing Bach. Spire preferred dark paneled rooms filled with books and good whiskey and Chopin and a coat that fit. Your Highness, Spire said, paying due deference to Her Majesty Queen Victoria, who stood facing away from him, hand upon the crest of a large armchair, turning toward a tall window with lace curtains partly drawn. Spire stepped forward, noticing that the marble-topped writing desk beside the Queen was covered with maps of New York City and schematics for an ocean liner. A telegraph machine sat silent on the desktop, gleaming in the sunlight. Mr. Spire, she began without turning to look at him. I have called you here to give you an appointment. You rose quickly through the ranks of the Metropolitan. I've been assured you are fair and just, keen to recognize patterns and aberrations that catch criminals, swift and smooth with your decisions, but perhaps too quick to spy. Spire felt heat rise in his face. I was afraid that's what this was about. Please, Your Highness, I've personally apologized to the Prime Minister and to Miss Everhart. A cloaked female utilizing secret passages within a subsection of Parliament does seem suspicious. Surely, as you know, that was to hide the fact that the PM had employed a lady as his chief bookkeeper. Imagine the outcry. But this isn't about the Prime Minister or his employees. You come highly recommended by Lord Black. She turned around at last. Her eyes were shrouded by dark lenses connected by a curving filigree bridge. He must have looked quizzical because she paused and she said, Ah, the lenses cut from a scrying glass in hopes I'll see the dead. When Spire simply nodded, the queen cocked her head. Not him, necessarily. I know what you're thinking. That the queen still dressed in mourning for her husband, Prince Albert, many years deceased, and entertained all sorts of ideas of how to contact him, not to mention sleeping beside a picture of him and placing out his fresh clothes each day, had become a quiet joke in the realm. What am I thinking, Your Majesty? Oh, come now. It's as if all of you think I go about dragging his coffin behind me everywhere I go. I thought I saw parallel scratches on the wooden floor. Spire said, gesturing down the hall. That explains it. He smiled. The queen tried to scowl, but instead coughed a laugh. She removed her glasses, piercing him with a stare. This short, plump-cheeked woman was downright disconcerting when she deployed her steely gaze. She was empress after all. What is wrong with you, Mr. Spire? You look dreadful. You need a better tailor. I came direct from a crime scene, Your Majesty. My apologies. I thought your gentleman explained. Ah, yes, Turney, that resurrection ring. Tell me, how large of an operation do you deem it? Between the financial speculation and the body snatching? A wide net. The ledger we found will condemn the ring, though there was a... a peculiar crest discovered. It, it had a ring of ritual to it, Your Majesty. The queen snapped her head to the side, and it was only then that Spire noticed that Black had slipped into the room as attain that crest. If it remains from Moriel's tenure, I want them all to hang. Lord Black nodded reassuringly. Spire was pleased the queen was taking the matter as seriously as she should. Mr. Spire, I'm about to tell you a state secret known only to a few. The Eterna compound was first sought in America after the assassination of President Lincoln. A bold idea, born of grief, 
I well understand Mrs. Lincoln's woes. A small team of theorists made no progress in their research until two years ago, but now there is a fresh impasse. As I have full faith in my realm, I believe we can fix the American's mistake and make the compound viable. May I ask what the Eterna compound is, Your Majesty? Why, it's a cure for death. A drug that confers immortality. I've had a team compiling information and studying the idea for years. And do we have the cure for death? The queen shook her head. No, a plant within the operation is not reported as scheduled. I empathize with Mrs. Lincoln, but I have no desire to confront an utterly impervious American president. <laughs> Lord Black stepped forward and spoke carefully. The British operation is paused. Our facility was recently compromised. You will safeguard fresh intelligence and a new team. All other matters of mundane police work must be cast off to the fellows you leave behind at the Metropolitan. Spire reeled. This appointment was a nightmare. The Queen had the wrong man. Spire didn't believe a word of any of that. A cure for death? How could he manage an operation he couldn't take seriously? He broached the only comfort he could cling to, the resolution of the horror he faced. But, but today's findings were hardly mundane. The work, not of mere burks and hairs. This was something even more insidious. Lord Black stepped forward. Material and information will arrive from New York in regards to Eterna. I will personally see, it, see to it that the Metropolitan follows every tourney lead. Spire fought the urge to drain the snifter as the queen delicately lifted a cup of saucer for tea. Spire swallowed hard. The queen had certainly read up on him, his mother's death, all of his background. She had looked in the whole of his history. She provided a case file there upon her table. Spire nodded. As we speak, Mr. Spire, all your belongings are being transferred to rooms in Westminster, Rochester Street. Lovely accommodations, unregistered, unlisted, a vast improvement from your current subsistence living. Bertram will give you keys. You will share your address only with the most trusted members of your assigned team. Yes, Your Majesty. Spire bristled, but managed to keep his tone level. He was a private man. That persons had been in his home and uprooted his possessions made him clench his fists. Lord Black will see to your new offices. Tell your Metropolitan Fellows nothing, save you've been transferred. You'll liaise further with a contact at the British Museum. With all due respect, Your Majesty, I cannot, in good faith, abandon the tourney case. I insist that you do. Your Majesty, I'm sorry, I have to ask, considering the bent of this commission, did my father put you up to this? The Queen arched a brow. She was not amused. <laughs> Victor Spire. Victor Spire, author of Penny Dreadfuls, Gothic novels, sensationist plays, have audience with Her Majesty the Queen. Ah, no, of course not. Forgive me for bringing him up, Spire said, mustering sincerity, biting back the urge to say that he knew firsthand she had secretly attended his father's latest show. After all, his men had seen to her protection. But a race for immortality. It sounds like something that my father would serialize in Dickens' magazine. The regent stiffened. Dare you imply, Mr. Spire, that this position is not to be taken seriously? Of course not, Your Majesty, pardon me. <laughs> Unlike my father, I have retained appreciation only for the concrete, the tactile, apprehendable, and solvable. Apply those very principles going forward, Mr. Spire. The Queen clapped her hands. Tell your father his last novel was dreadful. <laughs> you read it, Your Majesty? Every word. <laughs> Truly dreadful stuff. 
Agreed, your majesty, entirely agreed. Goodbye, Mr. Spire, good luck and do good work. Spire bowed his head as the regent swept away amidst the clicking of beads and the swishing of silk. Regardless of any motive or madness, to the point of risking treason, Harold Spire would hardly abandon his own case. Thank you. I will say that the um, the seeds of some of those, as all of my worlds are crossover worlds, the seeds of some of the horror that is going on in the realm um, can be found in my previous series, The Magic Most Foul Saga, which is what's in the back of of the of the room. Um, and also, for those of you who are strangely beautiful fans, yes, the guard make a special cameo appearance in the Eterna Files, um, only to confound my poor dear Harold Spire even further. <laughs> Bless his dear heart. So yeah, so Eternophiles is coming out in February, February 3rd. Um, that's up for pre-order now, as well as um, the new revised edition of Strangely Beautiful, book one and two, which is, um, they're together in an omnibus edition just called Strangely Beautiful. So both of the new uh, revised editions of Strangely Beautiful are also going to be out right after Eternophiles. So um, those are also available for pre-order as well. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for coming. You don't have to leave this second if you don't want to. You can just hang around and drink a little bit. And otherwise, see you next month. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, Sandra Martinez for her audio editing, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.